0: Uh, my name is Stuart McCrea. The joy of serving on staff is one of the pastors, and it is a delight to be able to preach God's word to you this morning. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter two. We're going to be looking at verses eleven through twelve. We're in a two-week, we're in the week two of a four-week series looking at the theme of exile. Christians are exiles in a foreign land. Christian, you are a citizen of heaven. Your king is Jesus, and your home is heaven. This is not your true home. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Many reasons. That's right. Hey, well, last week we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1. We looked at just the first two verses, and there we saw that uh, Christians are exiles because they are elected. They've been chosen by God. So he, Peter calls them elect exiles. And then what we further discovered is that Christians are elect exiles as a result of God the Father having foreknown them in eternity past, and also as a result of the Spirit setting them apart as God's holy elect exiles. And and then finally, Peter told us that we are elect exiles, Christians are elect exiles for this purpose, and that is for empowered obedience through the blood of Jesus. This morning, we're gonna to continue to be in First Peter. If you wanna look ahead towards next week though and think about next week, next week we're gonna be looking at Psalm 20. Pastor Doug is gonna be preaching Psalm 20, the one sure stronghold for exiles. But this morning, we're gonna continue in First Peter. So just to get our, our minds thinking here, if you were writing to us the elect exiles in Northern Virginia, what would you tell us we should expect in this life of exile? what would you say our greatest problem is? If you were writing a letter to us, the elect exiles in Lorton, Virginia, what do you say might be a good strategy for witnessing to unbelievers? Well, Peter's gonna take up these issues in our passes this morning, but before we get there, we're skipping a bit in the letter, so let me, let me summarize 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, verse 10. In chapter 1, verse 3 through 12, Peter praises God for salvation. He points exiles towards their imperishable, heavenly inheritance. And then he tells them that the, the trials that they will face here in this foreign land reveal the genuineness of their faith. Then in verses 13 through chapter 2, verse Three, Peter encourages exiles to set their hope fully on Christ and his return and to radically think and act differently as God's holy elect exiles. And then finally in chapter two, verses four through 10, Peter describes New Testament believers, the church, like living stones being built up into a spiritual house, the the temple, with Jesus being the foundational cornerstone What's more, he he goes on to continue to describe New Testament believers in terms that were previously only uh, used for Israel, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. And this leads us to our passage, these two verses, and this actually marks a new section in the letter that goes all the way through chapter four, verse 11. If we could broadly describe that first section as the theology for our elect exile identity, then this new section is the practical outworking of our identity. In our passage, the big idea is, the life of a Christian exile is one of war and witness for the purpose of worship. All right, let's let's read this together. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners in exiles, and he's going to urge them to two things, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And here's the other one. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter's urging them to do two things. Let's take up the first in verse 11. The life of a Christian exile is one of war for the purpose of worship. Let's read verse 11 again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your Now, before Peter commands them to abstain, he reminds them of who they are. Because in their identity is the empowering grace to obey. Peter grounds both commands, 1 in 11 and 1 in 12, in their Identity. The the biblical principle here is that God never commands us to do something without also giving us his enabling grace to obey. Peter reminds them that they are beloved. They are the beloved of God the Father, and they are as sojourners and exiles because God the Father has chosen them. These aren't simply identifications. They are indicators. They are claims upon their life, for what God has done and what God promises he will do in their lives in an ongoing way to transform them more into the image of Jesus. So Peter writes, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh or sinful desires or fleshly lusts. Either way, these wage war against your soul. (laughs) These are people who are experiencing Real suffering, real persecution. But Peter identifies their greatest and real battle with the sinful desires in their hearts. Peter tells them to abstain from the passions of the flesh, passions, desires, lusts, cravings. This is, these are all, this is all New Testament language that speaks of the sinful inner longings of the heart. In the Bible, the heart is the, is the very center of who you are. The Bible describes your heart as your causal core. It's the reason why you do what you do, think what you think, love what you love, hate what you hate. The heart is your causal core, Because it's a war in your heart, it's fought in every situation and in every location and in every relationship. You take your heart with you wherever you go. You you can't run away from this war. Now, here's the deceitful nature of sin. Our problem is often not in what we want, but in how much we want it. The problem occurs when we turn a, an ostensibly good desire into an inordinate ruling desire. You see, when a, when a desire becomes a ruling desire, it becomes an idol. It becomes our functional God. It becomes what we worship. And so passions of the flesh and sinful desires, it means the longing, the craving, or wanting something more Than God. Paul David Tripp says, human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship is not just something we do, it defines who we are. We cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships, it's just a matter of what or whom we serve. If you get comfort, if you desire comfort and get comfort out of a clean and orderly home, That's good. But if you're getting angry about the house being unclean, your desire might be ruling you. If you wanna be successful in your workplace, that's good. But if you are mistreating people and doing underhanded things to achieve, your desire might be your functional God. If you're a student and desire good grades, That's a good desire. But if you are cheating to get the grade, your desire might be ruling you. When something becomes an idol of the heart, it directs you because it directs your heart. It's what you must have, must get at all costs. When describing interpersonal conflict as the result of unmet desires, James says in his letter letter in James 4, verses 1 and 2, he says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, same Greek word in our text, and don't have, so you murder. Like Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he's thinking about anger in the heart. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and we're not, we're not getting what we want. We're not getting what we crave, what we covet, what we desire. Respect. To be seen as right. Simply just to have it our way. You, you, you fill in the blank. We're not, we're not getting what we want. And so we get angry. And We argue and fight to get it. Here's how this can can work in my life. Long day of work, hard, laborious. Yes, even my desk job, pastoral job, that that too can happen. Long day, hard day, I'm on my way home and I desire peace and comfort which is symbolized at about 8.30, that, that time has been shifting as the kids get older, but about 8.30, peace and comfort. And, and instead of seeing my wife and children as gifts from the Lord that I can serve, they are seen as objects in the way to get to what I want, what I crave. And so I'm, I'm short with them, I'm dismissive of them, I can be angry if they get in my way too much to get to 8.30, and the soft glow of TV (laughs) that is peace and comfort. As Tripp said, everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. So what are the desires that tend to rule your heart? What is it that consumes your thinking? That you can be, get anxious about it if, if it doesn't work out or, or angry if you don't get. This life of exile is not a vacation from home. Peter says it's a war zone. And so he commands Christians, he commands exiles to, based on who they are, to abstain, to keep away from, to refrain from, to refuse to give in to the sinful desires that wage war against their soul. Now, now what does it look like to abstain from sinful desires? What what does this war look like? Well, this war is about worship. Worship where we're talking about who or what rules our hearts. Who or what are we worshiping? It's, it's either God or it is something or someone else. Those are the options all the time we are worshiping. It is either God or it is other. Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers famously says on the screens, also in your sermon notes, the best way to disengage an impure desire is to engage a pure one. The best way to expel the love of what is evil is to embrace the love of what is good instead. To be specific, we must replace the object of our sinful affection with an infinitely more worthy one, God himself. In this way, we do not move from a full heart into a vacuum. Instead, we move from a full heart to a heart bursting with fullness. And the power of our new affection weakens and even destroys the power of sin in our hearts. In the throes of battling your sin, if you find Jesus to be more precious, more desirable, more satisfying than the sin you are resisting, holiness will be the victor. If Christ is your all-satisfying treasure, like that man who found treasure hidden in the field, he went and sold all that he had to buy that field. If Christ is your all-satisfying treasure, you will renounce every other worldly treasure to gain Christ. If resisting sin is about having a greater affection, a greater desire for Jesus well then the question is how do we grow our affection for Jesus well how does a husband grow his affection for his wife his affection grows as the relationship deepens A husband grows in his affection for his wife by spending unhurried time with her and when he can't spend time and he's away he thinks of her A husband grows in the affection for his wife as he studies her wanting to move past the superficial, to the deeper longings of her heart to know what really makes her come alive. And so it is with Christ. If we want to grow our affections for Jesus, we must deepen our relationship with Jesus. When was the last time you spent unhurried time with Jesus. His word in prayer. How often do you just think about Jesus? Well, let's not overthink this. If we want to grow our affections for Jesus, we must deepen our relationship with Jesus. And just like any relationship, it doesn't come easy. It's not automatic. It takes effort. Don't give up. Be honest with Jesus, as a saint of old would say, Oh God, I don't love you. I don't even want to love you, but I want to want to love you. Beloved, there's grace to live out your exilic identity. There is grace to live out that uh, that identity and that is to abstain from sinful desires as you grow your affections for Jesus. This life of a Christian exile is one of war for the purpose of worship. Verse 12. Peter tells us that the life of a Christian exile is one of witness for the purpose of worship. Let's reread verse 12. Peter commands Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Honorable speaks to a winsome moral quality. It's it's lovely, it's beautiful, it's gracious, it's noble and of integrity. Honorable conduct here mirrors good deeds in the second half of verse 12. I think that's helpful. In other words, honorable means the loveliest kind of visible goodness. Honorable means the loveliest kind of visible goodness. At the beginning of chapter 2, Peter has already told them to get rid of things that aren't honorable. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And in chapter 1, verse 15, Peter told them to have honorable conduct like this. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In a world that's marked by selfishness, deceit, debauchery, hatred, abuse, and so on living honorably is shocking and beautifully compelling. Now Peter tells these exiles that they are to live honorably amongst unbelievers. They're not, they're not supposed to create some sort of like monastic type community away from unbelievers, but they're to live amongst Unbelievers. The command is to, in an ongoing way, live honorably in every sphere of life and in every engagement, and, and Peter specifically highlights, amongst unbelievers. So, so this means having integrity at work and school. It means showing kindness to unbelieving neighbors. It means showing love to unbelieving neighbors family members and extended family members. It, it means gentleness with unbelievers you disagree with. Man, this, this life isn't normal. It sticks out. There is something beautifully compelling about living honorably. What about you? Is your moral life Compelling, attractive. Whatever your assessment was right there, would others that know you well say the same thing? I and mean, praise God for areas that we are living honorably, but, but where in your life do you need more grace for repentance and change? You see, the Holy Spirit is eager to empower you towards change and to living more honorably than what you may already be. There's a purpose for living honorably. Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, here's the purpose, when they speak against you, slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, your honorable conduct, and glorify God on the day of visitation as spiritual exiles that live in a foreign land, they they live amongst the people and in a culture that that have a completely different worldview than theirs. So, So no, it is not if, but when slander comes, but they're to live honorably amongst unbelievers so that when unbelievers slander them, those very people may see their good deeds, their honorable conduct, and contrary to attentions, they might glorify God on the day of visitation. They might come to worship the God of these exiles. One commentator says, Peter did not summon believers to a verbal campaign of self-defense or to the writing of tracts in which they defend their morality. He enjoined believers to pursue virtue and goodness so that their goodness would be apparent to all in society. In other words, there is such a way that actions do speak louder than words. To hypocritically live dishonorably undoes the best gospel presentation. See, Peter wants you to understand that if people know you're a Christian and they should, an honorable life refutes slander and it testifies to the goodness and glory of the king you say you serve. Peter's not upholding the adage, preach the gospel all times, use words if necessary. Earlier in this same chapter, he said, we are a people for proclamation. Proclamation. But here, Peter says that we can win people to Christ through the witness of our conduct. Peter must have been thinking about Jesus' words in his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, So that, here's the purpose, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If you live amongst unbelievers and honorably handle stress, suffering, defeat, success, Peter says that you may get to see a divine reversal. You see, your otherworldly honorable life will, for some, contradict the slander, and God may be pleased to use your life to cause them to worship Jesus. We do live in a foreign land, and so don't be surprised when slander comes. I found Thomas Schreiner's comments on, this, on their situation then to be helpful in interpreting our situation now. He writes this, unbelievers, unbelievers viewed Christians with suspicion and hostility because Christians did not conform to their way of life. Since believers did not honor the typical gods of the community, they were naturally viewed as subversive and evil in that social conduct. And So it is with us. You will inevitably be viewed as suspicion. You will be viewed with suspicion and hostility, slandered, as a bigot, as hateful, as unloving, as intolerant, as homophobic, as misogynistic. The list goes on. Because you do not conform to the culture and you do not conform to the false gods of the culture. What do I mean? Just One example, just one example. The the present sexual ethic on marriage and gender, driven by the false god of self, self that is ruling our culture, tells us that if you believe what the Bible says on these matters, you must be a bigot, hateful, unloving, intolerant, but it's not true. We can, as it were, hate the sin, but love the sinner. Despite current belief, we can agree to disagree and still show love. Indeed, we have an example. We have a good example, Jesus. Jesus honorably engaged with unbelievers. He ate with them. He engaged with them. He lived amongst them. He certainly called them to repentance and faith. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. But he showed them compassion and kindness. He was tender and loving. Peter Peter tells us later in chapter 2 that Jesus was our example to follow. He says, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges Justly, And it's from Jesus' example that Peter commands us later in this letter to do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Oh, but we're going to blow this. We're not going to do this. Perfectly, And so thanks be to Jesus that he is more than our example. Peter goes on to say that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Hello, exiles. Our honorable lives will, for some, tell a different story than what we are being slandered for. You'll be slandered as unloving, but your life should be filled with the grace and love of Jesus. There is forgiveness and empowerment to live honorably amongst unbelievers so that some may come to worship our King. Let's, Let's go back to where we started, if, if you were writing a letter to us, these elect exiles in Lorton, Virginia, what would you tell us that this, this life would be like? What would, you, what would you tell us are gonna be the problems, indeed our, our greatest problem that we have in front of us? What would your, what would your letter say about how, how we should best witness to unbelievers? Peter tells us that the life of a Christian exile is one of war and witness for the purpose of worship. And living in exile is tough. Beloved, living in exile is tough. We do live amongst the people in a culture that do not share our worldview, but our greatest problem is is not that. Our greatest problem is right in here, with the sinful desires that are waging war against our soul. But beloved, there is a tension out there and we're called to live honorable lives. Lovely lives. Lives that are attractive. Lives that honor Jesus. By the Spirit's power, we can abstain from sinful desires, and we can live honorable lives. The Spirit lives within us. We live in a community together. We're not on our own in any way. God is with us, and we're together. We can do this for his glory, for the good of others, and for the praise of Jesus. Let's pray. I would do thank you for this word that helps us to better see our situation as beloved, as exiles living in a foreign land. So we pray, would you help us, would you empower us to look and live like your holy, set apart, elect exiles. We, we want to make much of Jesus. We want to give him honor and praise with the way that we love him and the ways that we live our lives honorably amongst those that you have sovereignly placed around us. Help us to do just that together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.